Listeners should be aware, there may be spoilers. The Osage, their time is over. We got to take back control of our home. I was sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. We have so many deaths, we've lost count. It's just bad luck. Seems more like an epidemic than bad luck to me. Evil surrounds my heart. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by Thelma Schumacher. Thelma is truly a legend in the film community. Her credits span many of the most celebrated films of the last 50 years. Some of those projects include Woodstock, for which she was nominated for the Oscar, Raging Bull, for which she won the BAFTA, Eddie, and Oscar, Goodfellas, for which she was nominated for the Eddie and Oscar and won the BAFTA, Casino, for which she was nominated for the Eddie, Gangs of New York, for which she was nominated for the BAFTA and Oscar and won the Eddie, The Aviator, for which she was nominated for the BAFTA and won the Eddie and Oscar, The Departed, for which she was nominated for the BAFTA and won the Eddie and Oscar, Hugo, for which she was nominated for the BAFTA, Eddie, and Oscar, The Wolf of Wall Street, for which she was nominated for the BAFTA and the Eddie, and The Irishman, for which she was nominated for the BAFTA, Eddie, and Oscar. She is also tied for the most nominations and wins in the editing category of the Academy Awards. Now she has crafted Scorsese's newest masterpiece, Killers of the Flower Moon. Thelma, it's such a privilege to talk to you today. I loved your work on Killers of the Flower Moon. I love all your work. And I just am so excited that you're joining me today. Oh, (laughs) thank you so much. (laughs) So you've edited countless films for Martin Scorsese. How has your relationship evolved over time? When I first met him accidentally, I knew nothing about editing, absolutely nothing. And I had graduated from college thinking I wanted to become part of the diplomatic corps and studied political science and Russian language, but never film. But I had been intrigued. I'd had a little job working for someone before I met Marty. I saw an ad in the New York Times, if you can believe that, that said, willing to train assistant film editor. Hmm. And I loved watching old movies on television on the Million Dollar Movie, the famous million dollar movie program Mm -hmm. some of my husband's films for example they would run one of them nine times in one week and Scorsese would try and watch every one of them until his mother (laughs) screamed at him but I did see a couple there that never left my mind the life and death of Colonel Blimp was one of them and I answered this ad in the New York Times and it was a man who was butchering the great films of Truffaut, Fellini, Antonioni for late night television slot so they would fit in a a certain time space. Mm. And he took an entire reel out of Rocco and his brothers, and I was appalled. He did teach me, though, how to handle negative because we were cutting up the film and hot slice negative and to put titles on and things like that to prepare the films for an English-speaking audience. So I learned a little bit from it, but it was so horrifying what he was doing that I quit and I saw an ad for a six-week course at New York University. And there we were divided up into little 10-member groups to make five-minute films, I think they were, or 10-minute films. And I wasn't on Marty's team, but someone had miscut his negative. And the professor said, is there anyone here who knows how to cut negative that could maybe help him? 
And I said, well, I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) I went over and that's how we met. So it was all an accident of different accidents. And then this woman incorrectly cutting the negative, which wasn't her fault. And recently she contacted me and said, listen, I know in your interviews you talk about that. And I am so sorry. And I said, don't be sorry. You introduced me to Martin Scorsese and I've had the most <laughs> wonderful career. So I'm sorry to say I'm thrilled that you made the mistake. <laughs> so anyway, the reason I went off on that long thing is because Marty taught me everything I know about editing. I knew mm. nothing about it. And we worked together on his first feature film, Who's That Knocking? And on documentaries that we were making at that time for television with other people who were at what became NYU, like Michael Wadley, with whom we made Woodstock. And then when Marty went to Hollywood to bust in, I couldn't go with him because I wasn't in the union out there. There was a small union in New York, but they weren't very tough. But out in Hollywood, they had very strict rules or you had to spend five years as an apprentice and six years as an assistant or something before you could edit. And they wouldn't let me in. And yet you had already been nominated for an Academy Award for Woodstock. I'd been nominated for Woodstock, yeah. So anyway, (laughs) what happened is that I spent the next 10 years almost working on documentaries. And then Marty finally got me in the union on Raging Bull. It was actually Erwin Winkler, the producer, who got me in. So then we were back together again in 1979 or 78 and have been together ever since. But I learned so much about feature filmmaking with him on Raging Bull and being on a major studio lot in Hollywood, which was so different from filmmaking in New York. And I learned a ton more from him on that movie, which is almost a Bible about filmmaking, isn't it? It's tour de force. It's beautifully crafted in every single facet of the filmmaking process. It's amazing. You're right. The camera work and editing and acting and everything, use of music. So you can imagine I was just learning, learning, learning as we were cutting it because we cut everything together. We look at the dailies together while he's shooting and talk to each other about them. He lets me know what he likes and I let him know what I think. I make an assembly and then as soon as he comes back from shooting, we start cutting the movie together. And that's how we work. And people don't understand that. They give me way too much credit. (laughs) Well, you're probably also uh, not giving yourself enough credit, but (laughs) I'm sure that Marty believes in your abilities very much. And that's why you guys worked together for so long. I think he felt he could trust me to do what's right for the movie because when he was in his early days in Hollywood, he was working with people who were resentful of the way he was changing how movies are made. Mm. Just the rock and roll use in Mean Streets is earth-shaking. And his editing style and his directing style and the use of improvisation was not being well accepted. And so he was relieved when he met me in the student class. He felt he could trust me Mm. to do what was right for the movie and that ego battles would not be part of editing. (laughs) It's huge. And I think that our relationship with the director, it's like a marriage. It's so sacred in there. And it's very important that you guys are on the same page, but also challenging each other and coming up with the very best movie. Yes, collaboration. Collaboration is an amazing thing. And it's different with each 
group of people. It's different with each project. Movies are made through collaboration. It's not a writer sitting alone in a room writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. We work steadily throughout and screen a lot and debrief people afterwards and take what we think is valuable from them. Or if we don't think it's valuable, we don't take it. You just have to have one person in the room with you who's never seen the film and you're looking at it a different way. Don't you find that? Oh, absolutely. And it could literally be one person. I mean, Marty, sometimes he's nervous, of course, and so am I about who we're going to invite to see the first cut. And so I say, who do you think we should invite? And he'll say, well, invite the janitor. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm telling you, if the janitor was there, we would be learning something from how he's reacting to the film. (laughs) Absolutely. Is he bored? Is he moving around? And do you do preview screenings with an audience where you're getting cards and... Right. We've done it for years, but not on the last two. We've done our own private screenings, which has been great. And the film is almost three and a half hours long, and there's a lot of story that you're condensing into that three and a half hours. How long was the first assembly? It was only about four hours long, actually. And the movie is really... 326 and seven of those minutes are end credits so it's not really three and a half hours but sure i understand why people say that no we quickly got it down to a more reasonable length and then really began working on the important things of the structure and how things are working and building the love story because dicaprio had decided not to play the fbi agent and to instead to play earnest and that was a big change Mm. so some of the changes were made before they started shooting but some of it was still going on particularly with the two actors in the love story lily gladstone and dicaprio were working with marty building the story interesting yeah i heard that there was that shift so i'm sure changed the whole dynamic of that character of earnest yeah it's a big change it's a big change (laughs) yeah And the film does a wonderful job of keeping the various players' motives a bit of a mystery. And you don't know who to identify with for a while. Do we identify with Ernest? And what does that say about ourselves? And I Mm -hmm. think that was so fascinating about this particular film. Mm. Can you talk to me about the grayness? Yeah, I, I think that's the style that Marty came up with as he was shooting. He found that he wanted to dwell on the actors sometimes and make you really engage with them. For example, the early scene where Molly invites Ernest to have dinner with her. Oh, that's a fantastic scene. I love that. Uh, It's a wonderful scene, and that's deliberately done in a way where the pace is gentle. And Marty said that when he was shooting them with two cameras, he said, is where I fell in love with them. Mm. So he wanted to reproduce that in the editing. It's nice the way you see them start out one way and then gradually you begin to see Molly's unbelievable character and her dignity and her willingness to be open to this man who is honest about the fact that he's lazy and likes to party. <laughs> but <laughs> She even's like, Coyote wants money. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Well, she likes the fact that he's being honest and and he's attractive and he's attracted to her. Mm -hmm. But that is a little bit of a slow build in the beginning. First of all, they're feeling each other out and then things begin to shift when he begins to express his feelings about her. And even though 
she's makes fun of him a little bit, you feel that she's also responding to him. And that needed a, a certain pace. Yeah. And then that happens other times in the movie, too, where we felt that was needed. Yeah, and I love holding on that two-shot as Molly talks about the importance of the storm and what it means to her and oh, her people. You know, that happened. A man, one of the Osage working on the film, told him that when they were kids and there would be a big storm, they were running around playing tag or whatever, and the grandmother said, stop, sit down, we have to take this moment. And mm. so he said, I'm going to put that in the film. And it works beautifully, doesn't it? Oh, it's so great. Yeah, it's beautiful. What would you say was the greatest challenge of this particular project? Just getting the balance right between the love story and the rest. How to interweave those. And we experimented around a bit, but not much. You know, the two actors are so wonderful portraying the love between them. And people just keep telling me they believe it. And yeah. in fact, it was historically true. The FBI agent said to Molly, why do you stay with Ernest? And she said, I love him. Mm. So I think it was really true. And the two of them, Lily and DiCaprio, really made it work. Yeah, you bought it. You really bought it, especially you could just see the heartbreak in Molly at mm. the end where oh, she hmm. just wants so badly for him to do what's right and he just yeah, can't he can't do it he, he just can't do, it. can't do it yeah oh it's an amazing scene isn't it oh it's breaks my heart and the film mostly moves chronologically but it also jumps around in time you have these interesting time cuts where like we introduce ac kirby as the bomb specialist and then we cut to a, a quick flashback of him blowing up a bank or mm. there's this fantastic scene where the FBI is meeting at the oil rigs and they talk about their mm. discoveries. And then you cut to the various scenes of them putting together their case. Was that all scripted or did you? No, yes. Yeah, that interestingly, that was scripted. We wanted people to see. I don't know if we succeeded <laughs> that these people were put into the community as an insurance man and as someone who wants to buy cattle. But in fact, they were FBI agents. Yeah. But I'm not sure you quite get it, but you certainly do with John Wren, who plays the indigenous FBI man, who was quite yes. famous, actually. That was all very carefully scripted. And all those time jumps throughout the movie were scripted like that? or Yes. Okay. Yes. They, wow. they, they were. They were. Yeah. Very well constructed. And, you know, the one man there in the, the there are so many wonderful musicians in this movie who were cast sometimes because they were from the southeast and had that way of behaving and speaking. Jason Isbell, Sturgill Simpson and the man who sees Byron bring Anna to a bar. That is a famous harmonica player named Charles Musselwhite. And then. You see Jack Smith, I think, at the end as one of the people in the radio play. So uh, our casting director, Ellen Lewis, began coming up with this idea. And it's wonderful having these four great musicians uh, playing parts in the movie. Yeah. The soundtrack is very interesting. There was a lot of old country needle drops along with that fascinating score by Robbie Robertson. Can you talk to me mm -hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah, well, Marty wanted an indigenous person to do the 
composing for the film, and, and Robbie was half Mohawk. And so Robbie sent us a lot of stuff, and Marty structured it and chose that amazing piece that happens when the oil bursts out of the ground mm-hmm. as the sort of theme for the movie. But he also was very insistent on finding period pieces that would have been heard on the radio or on a record player in 1921. Mm, yes. And he eases those things in and out throughout the movie, which is something he's been doing for years, <laughs> ever since Goodfellas, particularly, or Mean Streets. And uh, he's a genius at it. I mean, I don't think anybody can put music to a film like Marty can because it's sometimes so surprising. Oh, yeah. Or very much on the nose in a beautiful way. On this one, we didn't listen to a lot of pieces. He was pretty sure what he wanted to use, aside from the Robbie Robertson score, the pieces from 1921. He was pretty sure he knew what he wanted. But on a film like Casino, sometimes he would have seven choices for each scene of possible music, and we would play each one against the scene after we got a first cut. One of them would usually jump out and that would be the one. Mm-hmm. So sometimes he works with a lot of material. I'm used to being dazzled by the choices he makes. Mm-hmm. How much did you know about the Osage murders before working on the film? And did you read the book before you started editing? Definitely. The book was a major resource for us. So everybody read the book. I didn't have to look at it too much after the first time I read it, but I would ask our wonderful researcher, Marianne Bauer, who did so much research on this film, and she had the very long contacts with the Osage Nation during the research and making of the movie. And so I would ask her sometimes a question, is this authentic, or mm. you know, what way should I use this shot? So it was important. But you know, the book is so well-read. I think a lot of people read it when it came out six years ago, but then after Ken, I think the news coverage of the reception was so phenomenal people started reading it and it became number one on the bestseller list. (laughs) And it was written six years ago. And then the second thing on the list at that point was David Grant's new book called The Wager about mutiny on a British ship. So he had number one and number two on the bestseller list Wow! because people were really intrigued and they wanted to know what this project was about. Yeah. It's amazing. It's wonderful that it's there, too, if they want to read it after they see it, just to find any other information. Yeah, and you want to get a little bit more detail? or Yeah, yeah. It looks like, especially at the beginning, it looks like there's stock footage of the Osage, but I'm not sure if that was stock footage or if Marty shot that footage and then had it aged. No, what he did, and he was very firm about this, he knew that he wanted to try and quickly get the point across about what happened to the Osage Nation when this oil was discovered and move on with the movie. He didn't want to get hung up with too much explanation. And he decided to shoot footage with silent film cameras at silent film speed. And Ellen Kuris, who's a documentary filmmaker, shot it for us. And one of the cameras they used was Marty's silent film camera. So that was a very strong idea he had right from the beginning. Mm. So sometimes we had to choose how much of each sequence we wanted to use. 
but the flavor you're getting of it is genuine silent film flavor. Wow. <laughs> so that was actually shot with a silent film camera from the time. Exactly. And at the speed of a silent film camera and with black and white film stock, of course, not from that time because it doesn't exist anymore. But there was no color then. Color yeah. came along a lot later. So, of course, it should be black and white. Yep. What about the Tulsa riots? Was that shot with the silent film camera no, or that, was that actual real, footage? That is real newsreel footage. Horrifying. Yeah. That is real. And it's so shocking because what happened after slaves were freed, when they became successful, white people got angry and they would be lynched. And here you had a city in Oklahoma that was highly successful. People were really doing well. Yeah. And the whites just decided to destroy it. And they did. Yep. It's horrifying. And it was happening in exactly the same time as these murders of the Osage. Interesting, yeah. When Ernest and Molly get married, I love that sequence with all these snippets evoking the spirit of the event. Can you tell me about whether that was a much larger sequence and then you guys made it more episodic or if it was shot that way? Yeah, I think it was more of a montage. I love hearing the Osage language when the traditional leader marries them and that we don't have any subtitles. Marty decided at certain points in the film just to hear the Osage and not have titles because he wants people to look at the image, the beautiful image. And mm. you know, in the wedding ceremony, they're getting married, right? So yeah. you don't need to actually hear what the traditional leader is saying. It also at the funeral of Lizzie, you don't need to know what is being said there at the funeral. And then when Molly and Ernest have a fight about the doctors bringing the insulin shot. You don't need to know either. Marty said, look, we know what's happening in this argument. She doesn't want them, and he is telling her she needs them. And so I thought it was so courageous of Marty not to have subtitles in those areas. I was a bit shocked at first, and I resisted him at first, but he was right. Especially when they're arguing about the insulin, it's really interesting because the doctor's kind of know what's going on, but they don't. And we're yeah. in the doctor's perspective. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So when Anna's body is revealed, it's so heartbreaking and so powerful. And then yeah. you have that horrid sawing of her skull intercut with the tent meeting with the elders. Can you tell me about that sequence? Yes, that sequence was just supposed to be a pretty traditional tribal council meeting. And then what happened was that the chief played by Yancey Redcorn, and, and then the man sitting next to him, a taller man than him, is actually the assistant chief. And he's called Paul Red Eagle. And he's played by a man named Everett Waller, who's a lawyer who represents the nation sometimes in front of courts. And Marty said to him at one point, listen, I'd like to get reactions of the Osage listening to the tribal council meeting. Could you just talk off camera and we'll film their faces reacting to you? And when Marty heard what he was saying, it was so powerful that he said, wait a minute, stop, okay. Let's set this up. I'm going to cover him saying all this stuff. And it was so powerful, his passion and anger. Yeah. And 
belief in his nation is so stunning. To me, it feels like it's about all the nations, the 259 or however many there are of the people whose land we took away. It's relevant to all of them. And it was so powerful that Marty wanted to use all of it. And he said, I think it would be great to make a break in the middle so that the second part will be just as powerful as the first part. And it was his idea to put the autopsy in there, which is quite a brilliant idea, mm-hmm. and then go back to another forceful, powerful speech by Everett Waller. I mean, that was all unexpected, and it's so important to the movie. Absolutely. There's this fantastic scene, and it reminded me a little bit of that scene that you were talking about when Molly invites Ernest over for dinner, where Bill asks Ernest if he's going to kill him. And I just thought it was so nice, the pace of that sequence. Oh, my God, that scene is so wonderful. That is Jason Isbell, a very well-known country singer. And he's not an actor. But boy, can he act. (laughs) Oh, my God, the dailies of that scene, Marty and I were just absolutely eating them up. It is such a great scene, yeah. And for him not to be an actor, you know? He was perfect. And I don't know why Marty decided he would be right for that particular part, as opposed to Sturgill Simpson in Place Grammar. Mm -hmm. So why he decided to put each person where he did is very interesting because Bill is perfect in that scene. Oh, amazing. (laughs) And of course, Leo loved working uh, with a scene written like that. Wow, is that great. Oh my God. (laughs) I (laughs) love cutting that scene. It was so easy. It was just a matter of sometimes just getting the right little pause, you know? Yeah, it's like they're playing chess in that room. Yes, exactly. And then that amazing scene with the explosion and the glass shattering through the window and following Ernest's POV as the devastation is revealed. That was just so impactful. Yeah, well, that was interesting because Marty had in mind that it was all going to be Ernest's point of view. That Even though there are tons of people running past him towards the explosion and saying, it's Rita's house, it's Bill and Rita's house and things like that. He definitely did not want, even with looping of voices, he didn't want much of their voices because he wanted it to be the reaction of Leo to the terrible devastation, he thinks. His POV. Yeah. That was interesting because originally, you know, I would have thought we would have people running by him and saying, no, 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 he didn't want that. So that's how the scene was conceived and carried out actually pretty simply shot for shot the way he designed it and how he wanted the shots to go. And then I think Molly's performance when she finds out that yet another one of her sisters has died is unbelievable. And, mm. But Leo, too, is shaking because he's realizing that this thing that he's agreed to is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> His performance there is, woo. Yeah, yeah. you really see that uh, it really weighs on him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's sort of where you start to see that there's these cracks in Ernest's resolve and that powerful scene when Hale tells Ernest to sign the paper. And I just love just seeing Leo as he tries to figure out what to do and you just see the wheels spinning. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then that great reveal of Tom White. (laughs) Well, 
It's so wonderful the way De Niro does that, the way he builds up certain lines. And then when he decides to shift to, and you have to sign this paper, it's so wonderful the way he builds towards that. And then suddenly he thinks that with that build, he can flip that line in and get what he needs. (laughs) (laughs) It was a joy to cut that. And you're right that DiCaprio's face is so wonderful because he has been under the thumb of his uncle for so long, gone along with so many terrible things. And now when his uncle says, listen, if you get charged, don't worry, you're going to beat it. He's saying, what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You told me you would protect me and you're not. And then the way he feels about his wife is so important at the end when De Niro says, and she's going to pass. And God is waiting for her and his reaction to that, because that's not what he wants, Mm -hmm. that he loved her and he wants to keep her. It's just, well, it was a great, brilliant acting scene to cut. And we had quite a few takes for that, but quickly it came down to the most important ones. And then, of course, to see that White is watching all of this in the mirror. (laughs) Yeah. It was a great cut and a good segue to him waiting for the guys to come and talk about what they found out. Yeah, not revealing him watching until the end. It's really interesting, too. Yeah, yeah. And talking about Hale saying that Molly's going to no longer be that scene of Molly wasting away and then revealing Hale visiting her and the amount of tension that's there. So I I hope it was clear that is possibly a hallucination. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because then you cut to the overhead and Hale is gone. So you're like, did he actually visit? Did he not? If he did visit, she probably would be dead. And so it was really interesting. Yeah, we wanted to give you the choice of deciding whether you thought it was hallucination or not and not give you a definitive answer. So Marty shot it in a way that we could pop Bob in. In other words, it starts with the wide of her And then suddenly you cut the Bob sitting there, but you don't see him walk in. No. And that was the whole point, that it should be possibly a hallucination of hers. And the way he acts is so brilliant. (laughs) She says, are you real? And he says, I could be real. (laughs) Wow, is that a great performance? And then we had to decide how to, again, reinforce the fact that it was a hallucination by having him pop out of the high wide down angle. Exactly. So I hope that worked because that was the whole idea. I felt it was a hallucination, especially because she's hallucinating about owls and of death coming to visit her. And so it's either an hallucination or she in some way intuitively knows that this is all coming from Hale, even if he's not there, that he is the puppet master. That's right. And she's been feeling his impact all along. It's a beautiful scene. And I've said to Marty, I began to get the idea with hallucination when her hand comes up from the bottom of the frame and he takes hold of it. That's where I really got the feeling it was hallucination. (laughs) (laughs) And I love this connection to the spirit world. And when Molly's mother passes and suddenly you go from the funeral to her and the ancestor. The ancestor. the ancestor, exactly. The ancestor is there. Talk to me about that sequence. Just so you know, 
the ancestor who has come to take her home is based on a very famous portrait of an Osage. Oh, wow. And the two people who are standing behind him are the mother and father of Lizzie. And they've come to take her home, too. And they Mm. have this beautiful smile on their face. They've been reunited after many years. And she has a smile of joy. Oh, totally. At seeing them and being with them again. It's so beautiful. (laughs) And she no longer has to suffer through losing her children. That's right. Yeah. I love the time cuts as the FBI questions Ernest and won't let him sit down. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That scene with Leo, just (laughs) you could just tell how tired he's getting. Tom White comes over and says, I want to talk to you about the murders of Anna and Minnie. And instead of extensive shots of time passing, what Marty decided to do is just a close-up of Leo. He puts his head back. We fade to black and then come back up and he raises his head again and he looks very tired, but it's all one shot actually. Mm. And the fade is to give you the feeling of the time passage instead of having to go through a series. Interesting. Yeah. It's very clever. (laughs) Yeah. And the flies are real, by the way, there were flies everywhere down in Oklahoma. Really? Yeah. Well, particularly in August is a big fly season. Yeah. He keeps slapping the flies and I'm just like, Are the flies attracted to him because there's so much bile inside his body and it's amazing? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) For example, the dinner scene where Hale finds out that Molly is pregnant. They said that the roast beef that was sitting on the table was covered with flies. (laughs) (laughs) And they were just everywhere because actually I've been in Scandinavia in August and also I hear the same thing as in Alaska for some reason. That month of August, the flies are so terrible that the reindeer actually leave and go up into the mountains to get away from them. So I think they were probably shooting that scene in August, and there were just flies everywhere. The way that they're just annoying him as he's trying to keep his story straight is great. Mm. And then talking about keeping stories straight, then you have that great scene of Ramsey talking to Ernest about how he needs to keep their story straight and not tell the FBI what happened. That was a great scene. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great scene. You know, that is from a transcript of the actual interrogation of Ramsey. Word for word, when he says at the end, get your pencils. And also the trial testimonies are word for word from the documents. Those scenes where Ernest goes in the courtroom to testify were fantastic. Yeah. And they're actually from the transcript of the trial. That's great because it feels so real. Mm. Just Ernest looking at Hale in the courtroom and you just see (laughs) there's just so much tension between the two of them. Yeah. (laughs) Followed by that intense scene when he meets all the powerful oil men opening up the veil. Oh, God. Well, that's such a brilliant idea of Marty's when his brother says, the lawyers want to talk to you. And the next cut is this group of people. It looks like a Rembrandt, the way it was lit by Rodrigo. Mm. And you say, oh, my God, this is everyone that he's been with in the whole movie. 
And obviously something's up here. It's not just having to talk. They've got all yeah. these people there to force him to do something. It's a brilliant moment. It's not just hail now. So yeah, that was so brilliant of Marty to start the scene that way. Mm-hmm. Instead of Leo walking in. And then you see the people know. You cut right to them. And they're talking. And they stop talking when he walks in off camera. And then you get it. <laughs> yeah. That was a fantastic reveal. Mm. And I just love the acting and the performances of Ernest when he learns his child has died. And the scene between oh, him wow, and Hale yeah. was just <sighs> so fantastic. And Jesse, the way Jesse tells him is so brilliant. Oh, my God. That's quite a scene. <laughs> it's quite a scene. He had a lot of powerful footage there, yeah. Tell me about how did the true crime stories of the FBI show come about? Was that in the script? No, it wasn't originally, but you can imagine that what you would have to do after Molly leaves him is put up titles that say, blah, 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 and yep. da, 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 Marty didn't want to do that. And in the research that everybody had found, it was clear that the FBI had used this case to build their name in the nation. It wasn't even called the FBI then. That's when Jesse Plemons says, I'm from the Bureau of Investigation. Mm -hmm. So they used this case to build their national imprint and get people to support creating this Federal Bureau of Investigation. And they did these radio shows in the 30s, particularly. And so Eric Roth, one of the writers on the film, was given some of this information and suggested it to Marty. And it was a very daring decision yeah. to cut from Molly leaving <laughs> to the radio show, but it worked. It's shocking. Yeah. And then Marty is so moving at the end. And then the beautiful pull up from the drum and the Osage are still alive. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, they're still alive. Yeah. That that circle shot as you just come up and Oh, beautiful. Very powerful. Thank you for being such a fan of the movie. That's wonderful. Oh, such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. And I hope we'll meet again. That sounds great. Take care, Thelma. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We really appreciate it. I don't even know if you love me anymore. Of course I love you. And kill these men who killed my family. Did your wife say who she was most afraid of? Don't do something you're going to regret for the rest of your life. I ain't got nothing but regret.